The story has been told of a group of colonists who left Virginia in the late 18th century, so the late 1700s, and they started trekking across the mountains that lay off to the west. And for some reason, before they could get through the mountains and arrive at their destination, they had to stop. Their, their journey came to a, a screeching halt, and for a time they were stuck there, whether it was illness or the death of some horses or broken wagon wheels or whatever the case. And they spent 20 years living there isolated in the mountains. During this time, they saw no other colonists, no one else who could tell them what was going on in the outside world. And for them, time kind of was suspended until finally another group of travelers came through. And when they connected with them, naturally, there was great curiosity about what had been going on in the, the wider sphere. And as they talked, those, those men and women who had been isolated there for a time started hearing strange terms and, and strange updates they didn't understand. Things, things about what Congress was doing. The, the, the state of the new republic. The aftermath of the war of independence. What, who the president of the United States was, the existence of the United States, things like that. Finally, someone stopped them and said, what on earth are you talking about? And they had to catch up with the 20 years of very, very important and pivotal history. They did not know that they were now citizens of a new American nation. In their minds, they were still loyal subjects of the crown. And when they learned this new information, this new reality suddenly came to bear on them in a way that changed everything, had to realign everything, had to, to change their, their values, had to change their loyalties. It changed who they thought of themselves as being, and it all happened at once for them even though the pain and the work and the toil had all been dragged out over many years for others while they were isolated there in the mountains. Well, here in this text, we have a similar situation. Here, we find some people who not out all isolated in the, in the mountains, but living in a rather large city, seemingly. There is a group of disciples of John the Baptist who 20 years after he had come and ministered as the forebearer, the forerunner to the Messiah and had been killed, they're still operating under his preaching, his, his teaching of expectation, and yet they don't know that the Messiah has come. And they don't know that he has died and risen again and that there is now uh, hope in him for salvation and a mandate to go out and preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit and another baptism. All of this stuff is totally foreign to these people. The passage begins, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul came through the inland country and came to Ephesus. You see, we left last time uh, with Paul nearing the very end of his uh, second missionary journey. Having spent some time there, uh, a, a year and change in Corinth, he came on to Ephesus with uh, his two closest co-workers at this point, or two of them anyway, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And there they did ministry. Paul ministered for a short time before moving on himself and leaving Priscilla and Aquila there. We followed Paul back remember, to Palestine, 
And then we sort of left him to do his thing, and the narrative shifts back to Ephesus. And for the first time, we get a glimpse of the kind of thing that is going on even after the apostle leaves a city or an area. Ministry continues. Discipleship continues. And what happens here is that this uh, young man named Apollos, who in a similar way to these men we'll meet in this passage, has been baptized with the baptism of John. He's preaching a, a message about the Messiah, but he doesn't have all the facts. He only knows a little bit. Perhaps he's put together that Jesus is the one that John was talking about, it seems, but he doesn't know all that Jesus taught, all that Jesus did, and all that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And he doesn't know about the Great Commission that says we must go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, because he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And so uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they take Apollos aside in their home. He sits with them. He learns. He believes, at which point they start referring to him as Apollos Creed. No, they don't. Uh, well, maybe. I, I guess we don't know for sure. It's not in the text anyway. Um, but Apollos is such a gifted rhetorician, speaker. He's so eloquent. He's so educated that he says, I think I could be of great use down in Corinth. They send him to Corinth. And there he has an incredibly successful ministry to the point where we see that his impact has been so great that there are those who say, I follow Peter, those who say, I follow Paul, and then still those who say, I follow Apollos. This guy was like the Tom Bays of Corinth. <laughs> In the meantime, I pointed out that there's almost this kind of sneaky, under-the-radar start of the third missionary journey here in the text. Without much fanfare, he sets off again, Paul heading off to, to make his way west toward Ephesus through the inland country, which refers to that main highway that goes through the mountainous region from Phrygia into Asia. You've got a new map on one side there, first and second missionary journey, flip it over. On the second side, there's the third and fourth missionary journey. And you can see how he is moving right through toward Ephesus, following the higher road. And this road, he's, he's really on his way back with a purpose. We know that because this was a more direct route and, and more difficult than the main trade route, which followed through the valleys. You can kind of see that through here through Colossae and, and Laodicea, around those cities, down through easier terrain. Rather, Paul makes a beeline. And, and yes, lines on maps are easy to look at, easy to draw, but you have to recognize this is 2D, right? If we could turn this thing and look, you'd recognize how the travel is just grueling. Starting in Antioch, it's more than a thousand miles by foot, up and down and up and down, and he's constantly surrounded by these dangers. He references them sometimes in his letters. Uh, in fact, he sums them up, uh, apart from those that are uh, specific to being at sea, he sums up the dangers, uh, saying uh, dangers from rivers, from bandits, from the Jewish opposition, from pagan persecution, from false brothers, and, and of course the whole time he's visiting his churches and he's kind of feeling the weight with each successive visit of the problems and the worry about those churches, the concern that he has. Not a, a sinful anxiety, uh, at least not for the most part, but still it's a great weight to say, I am responsible to God for these churches which I have helped to found and these churches that look to me uh, for guidance and that sort of thing. But he has one church in mind here particularly, and that is Ephesus. 
And, and the reason that I think he, he goes straight there and takes this difficult route to get there as quickly and directly as possible is because of what he said back in chapter 18, verse 21. But on leaving them, he said, I will return to you if God wills it. And he set sail from Ephesus. And, you know, it's, it's so easy to say you're going to do something, to declare your intention. Oh, you know what? We'll see. It's, it's e- I mean, it's easy to say you'll remember someone in prayer but you're just saying it. It's easy to, to say you'll, you'll check in on someone who's struggling. It's easy to say you'll help, but with all the irons we all have in the fire, it's so easy for those intentions to get lost in the shuffle, pushed out of the fire all the way, and cooling out of sight, out of mind. Well, Paul had more irons in the fire than any of us, and he goes right back. Because he said he would, if God wills it. And notice, even though he said if God wills it, he doesn't wait for a sign The first time he tried to visit Ephesus, God rerouted him. If God does that again, so be it. If not, Paul is going to Ephesus. He promised to try, and he does. And when he arrives, he finds some disciples. That's the whole initial description we get. There he found some disciples. And as we learn more about them, we realize that not unlike Apollos last week, they were being faithful according to what light they had, but they didn't have the full light of the gospel. They seemingly welcomed Paul as a brother. They were friendly. They were open. But their faith, it was not rooted on the rock that is Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. You know, as Paul's arriving in the city again, and as always is the case, his intention is to first go and and speak in the synagogue to the Jews. It would have been easy just to kind of let this go. To say, oh, John the Baptist? Yeah, all right. I mean, I love John the Baptist. Good stuff. You're on a good path. Keep plugging away, guys. God bless. But instead, he asks the pointed and probably difficult questions about encountering Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit coming upon them. He asks the difficult questions because those answers are going to determine whether or not they are born again. You know, it's, it's very easy in our lives when, when you are surrounded in a culture that, that is full of hostility toward the gospel more and more every day to just when you come across someone who says, oh yeah, I mean, I, I have a Bible verse pinned up in my, in my cubicle or yeah, I believe in God or I, I went to Sunday school as a kid just to go, oh, phew, all right, there's not going to be a fight here. I'll just tread lightly and we'll kind of coexist, get along here. But we don't have that option as believers to simply kind of let these vital things lie. We have to ask the question, have you encountered Jesus? Or is this Jesus thing just something you lean on once in a while? It's kind of a a security blanket for you or, or something nostalgic. Have you really encountered Jesus or did you just learn about him in Sunday school? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you born again? This is not optional for those of us who are following Jesus. This is what we are commanded to do. Now, as with Priscilla and Aquila last week, Paul approaches these disciples out of a concern for them, a love for them, not a desire to point out their shortcomings and condemn them. And I think as a result, they answer him honestly, and they are open to to his teaching. The question Paul asks specifically is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Notice he does not say, did you believe? Oh, okay, well then you've received the Holy Spirit. 
And I think there's an important distinction there. Because uh, most people, if you ask them about their beliefs, will tell you, yes, I believe them. But remember, faith without works is dead. There is a way, as James teaches, there is a way that you can intellectually sort of assent to something or convince yourself you believe it, and yet you don't actually walk in it. The faith there is just an idea. It's not a reality in your life. So he asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit? He assumes not that if they say, yes, I believe, and if they believe, yeah, we're, we're followers, that they are filled with the Spirit. Rather, he assumes that there will be some experience of it, and it will have manifested itself some way, internally and externally, in a way that could be observed. The first time I ever heard this taught on, it was uh, John Piper teaching on this concept, and it really rubbed me the wrong way. It, it was uncomfortable for me to think, wait a minute, you, you have to ask that question even of yourself? Sure, I've believed and I've always been taught that if you believe, boom, you have the Holy Spirit. But Paul doesn't ask that. He asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And what he was doing was not pushing some weird agenda. Piper was just looking through the scriptures at passages like this and others and seeing that in the scriptures, there is no question when someone receives the Holy Spirit. There are actually seven different terms used in the book of Acts to describe the coming of the Spirit, uh, people receiving the Spirit. Uh, It's described from above, kind of from what God is doing. So the Holy Spirit is being given. Secondly, the Holy Spirit falls upon people. The Holy Spirit comes upon people, which is what's used here. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon people. And then it's described in three ways from below. People receive the Holy Spirit, also used in this text. People are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and people are filled in the Holy Spirit. And by that, we don't mean the continuous being filled by the Spirit that that is commanded of us to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, but rather that initial uh, indwelling of the Spirit within us as a new creation, now, now within us, sanctifying us. And in almost every case, more than one of these uh, descriptions or, or phrases is used. At Pentecost, you see all seven of them, and you see it. I mean, you see the Spirit come, and, and there's power in it. They're speaking in tongues. I mean, it draws a crowd, and thousands of people are saved. There's no doubt something happened. Uh, there's the, the passage in Samaria, which is a, a similar to this. It's a subsequent. Some people who are, in some sense, believing but haven't received the Spirit, and, and the Spirit comes, and, and it's so clear that something has happened that Simon the sorcerer, watching it, says, wow, can I buy that? Can I buy the ability to do this? And then here, as they receive, they speak in tongues, and they prophesy. It's, it's clearly observable, and it's something that's supernatural. And that's vital to our understanding of what it means. This is not intellectual. Well, uh, if A and B, then C. If I've believed in Jesus, then I've received the Spirit and He's... No. The Spirit will make Himself known. And you may be saying to yourself, well, I didn't speak in tongues or prophesy when I came to faith. Maybe I don't have the Spirit. Now, hold on. In the Scriptures, in the book of Acts even, not everyone who receives the Spirit speaks in tongues. Paul told us not everyone has that gift. And in a tradition where you must have spoken in tongues in order to be considered a believer or in order to be considered filled with the Spirit, they're just ignoring much of what's taught about these things in the, in the Scriptures. But one thing that is always the case, that is always present, is power. In Acts 1.8, Jesus himself said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And so maybe the question to ask is, have you seen power, the power of the Spirit in yourself? Has that been observable, convicting you of sin, drawing you to God himself, giving you the courage to step out in faith and, and risk it all for Jesus? Have you seen the gifts of the Spirit manifest in you, glorifying not you, but your God in a way that can't be explained by raw talent or skill or genetics, renewing your desires internally and your appetites away from the flesh and the world and instead realigning your will with God's will. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. Their answer to his question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, is no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now that translation uh, and others like it have been challenged that perhaps what they're saying is something a little bit more vague uh, and, and a little bit less pointed. I mean, because if they were familiar with John the Baptist's teaching, uh, they were familiar with him teaching, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but there will come one mightier than I after me. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And of course, that's fulfilled at Pentecost and, and then continually as people come to faith. So there, there was knowledge of a Holy Spirit. What they didn't know is that there was a Holy Spirit to be received right now. They thought this was still yet something to come. And so Paul gets to come and bring the good news that this is available to them right now in this moment. And he said to them, by way of follow-up question, verse 3, Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Perhaps these 12 disciples uh, know even less than Apollos last week. Seemingly, they, they only knew what John taught about a coming Messiah, not the life and death and resurrection, certainly not Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit. They'd been holding on to hope for decades, and by bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul has the happy task of bringing that hope to fruition. Like those Virginians in the mountains, they were traveling together, fueled by hope, but still thought they were under the tyrannical rule of a foreign power. What they needed to hear was about what had been accomplished on their behalf. Just as those Virginians in the mountains heard about what had been accomplished on their behalf while they were isolated. So these, these disciples need to hear what Jesus has accomplished on their behalf while they were yet his enemies, yet sinners. They need to hear the good news, as, as Karl Barth put it, that they are spoken for in Christ. And you know, at this point in the, in the narrative, I always stop and think, how, how could they have gone 20 years in a world that is just bursting with news about Jesus to the point where power structures at the highest levels are beginning to react to it and yet not hear about Jesus himself and put the pieces together? And the fact is that even today, 2,000 years later, with the gospel having gone into just about every nook and cranny of the world, there are still people, even here in America, doing the same thing, hearing pieces and not putting them together, holding on to this kind of vague, rudimentary faith that says, yes, I believe that God wants good things for me. Yes, I believe, uh, I believe in Jesus even, perhaps, and, I, and I, I've prayed now and again to him. But the Great Commission tells us we can't be complicit in that kind of vagary, that kind of faith that doesn't actually take hold of its object. Making disciples doesn't just mean, here, repeat this prayer, sign this card, put your stamp of approval on this idea, you're in, job done. 
It means teaching people to submit to all that Jesus has commanded. That's a great commission. And in the church, it means being open to being taught. And these disciples very much were. They weren't in the full light of the gospel, but they were faithful to what light they had. And so Paul shines the bright light of Jesus upon them and illumines them with it. There's a reason that in the book of Revelation, as Jesus is surrounded by these seven churches, that they are pictured as seven lamp stands. They're not the light. We're not the light ourselves. We're called to be salt and light, but the way that we can be light is by reflecting the light of God toward people. And as lamp stands, the, the lamp stand is the church. It is the place where the people who reflect the light and, and, and illuminate those who are in darkness gather together. And this is what's happening already. And we see that happening here. Paul begins to to shine the light in verse 4. He says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling them to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And repentance, like we said last week, is vitally important. As, as disciples of Jesus, we're called to live a life of repentance. But this baptism of repentance was preparatory. It stressed human sinfulness, which is the problem of mankind. And it created the longing for the man who would bring the solution, or rather who would be the solution, Jesus, whose sandals John was not even uh, worthy of untying. And I find that often the easiest people to reach with the gospel are these people. Who've, who've come to that point of recognizing that they need to repent, that they need to be born again, that something new, something different has to happen because all of their attempts at self-reformation are doomed to fail. Every time they turn over a new leaf, it withers and dies. Perhaps these are people who've come out of a church tradition that just emphasizes the very same thing, that you're sinful, you're sinful, you need to, to grab yourself, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and be better. And, and they've tried again and again and again, and they, I've got to turn this thing around, and they find that they can't, at least not in any kind of permanent way. Or perhaps they come out of a, a tradition that just emphasizes positivity. You can do it. You can be who God wanted you to be. All of your own strength. We call this uh, Pelagianism in, in church history. Maybe, maybe people who come out of that, that's America's religion, and they've realized, no, I, I can't be what God created me to be unless God made me to keep on uh, struggling and falling in the exact same way, and they come to the end of themselves, and then you're there, just as Paul is here to say, listen, Jesus accomplished that for you. You're no longer subjects to a tyrant 3,000 miles away. There's been a revolution spiritually speaking, a grace revolution. Jesus died on a cross and bore your sins, and now you in him can be forgiven and made new. John the Baptist himself knew this. That's why he was not worthy to even unbuckle the the sandals. He told Jesus that he wasn't worthy to baptize him. He should be baptized by him. Because John's baptism was about the death of the old self leaving nothing but good intentions afterwards. Baptism in the name of Jesus is about new life in Christ. We're going to suss this out a little more next week, but suffice to say that turning from your sin is good, but turning to Christ is necessary to salvation. That we are saved by repentance and faith. And, and when it's boiled down in shorthand in the scriptures, it generally just says faith, because true faith, genuine faith, assumes repentance. Repentance in fact, is, 
is granted to us just as faith is a gift to us. And you know, even for those of us who've been following Jesus for years, it's the same in our lives today. Shame and guilt-based systems emphasize the former, the, the turning from sin, the death to sin and self, until we don't feel like we can do the latter, which is to turn to Christ and be accepted and embraced. The question perhaps to ask when, when asking, when determining whether you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, whether you had an encounter with Jesus, is when you sin, is your tendency to run and hide from him like Adam and Eve? Or to run to him to receive forgiveness and new life? You can have all the ingredients there, all the right words there, even a lot of the right uh, phraseology in some scripture. But without the Holy Spirit softening the heart, taking the heart of stone and giving us a new heart, a heart of clay, a heart of flesh that can be formed by him that is, that is in keeping with who he created us to be, we are not truly his followers. We're not truly his children. We have to be adopted, readopted by him because we have abandoned him for a different father, the devil. It's a bit like cooking, baking, right? You can, you can open up an ingredients list in a recipe and put everything together the way it's supposed to be. You can even blend it and, and, and puree it, or uh, you can tell I don't bake. Uh, you know, put it in the, the mixer, the, the KitchenAid, and, and get it all mixed up nice and good. But until you've put it into the oven and introduced the right amount of heat, you haven't changed it from being a collection of ingredients into being something new, an actual dessert. In fact, you know, there's a, a cooking blog that says this. Heating starches changes crystallized starch molecules into gels. Bread becomes stale when the starches crystallize, and warming the bread returns them to their soft gel state, making the bread taste and feel fresh. Heating meat causes the tough collagen connective tissue to denature and soften into a gel. When you, when you heat something, when you cook something, you're making something new. Well, in the same way, we can introduce the gospel, we can introduce the scriptures, and we do believe they never return void. God's purpose for them is always carried out. And when the Father, through the Spirit, calls someone to himself, to the foot of the cross, that is when... Something new is created out of those ingredients. And so that happens here. On hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Not 12 angry men, but 12 humble and pious men. They didn't respond with indignation. They could have been 12 angry men. They could have said, how dare you say our faith and our baptism are insufficient? But rather with humility and joy, joy that they could finally experience what the Baptist had been promising, they reached out in faith to their Savior. And their humility and faith were rewarded immediately with the Holy Spirit as evidenced through gifts of tongues and prophecy. We see here that teachability is a mark of a true disciple. Just like Apollos last week, who went against every cultural norm as an educated teacher and, a, and a, a rabbi of great growing influence, he submitted to the teaching of these tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila. I think we see here very much the priesthood of all believers, which is a, a core Baptist tenant from the very beginning. The notion that it's not just seminaries and, and theological institutions that help teach and prepare ministers, but rather all believers are called to disciple each other, 
In fact, we have we got John the Baptist in this text, but maybe we should call them Priscilla and Aquila the Baptist. Who knows? Now, there are some traditions that will look at this text and, and a couple others similar to, the, to it and, uh, and say, you see, this is why we teach a second blessing, a, second, a, a subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit, a baptism of the Spirit that comes after faith. You can be born again, but not baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they would point to a passage like this and say, look right here, proof that the Spirit doesn't come right when you put your faith in Jesus, but at a later time with the laying on of hands and the presence of miraculous gifts and all this stuff. And yet on the contrary, Paul is testing whether their faith and their baptism have been effectual or not. And the fact that the Holy Spirit had not come upon them is why Paul then brings them the gospel, and, they, and that's when they believe. Now, some have countered that by saying, no, no, clearly they were already believers. They just hadn't received the Spirit. And in the face of that, I would simply point anyone to Romans 8, 9 and say, read that. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Those who are not filled with the Spirit are not followers of Jesus. They're not saved, are not born again. These subsequent events, these subsequent comings of the Spirit, like uh, Samaria in chapter 8, and and here uh, with these 12 disciples, they're not new Pentecosts. Rather, they're the sharing in one Pentecost of all believers. And these, these passages are designed, I believe, to illustrate the oneness of the church. Since believers are baptized by one Spirit into one body, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There cannot be, therefore, splinter groups like this. You know, the earliest Baptists actually struggled with this notion. They had inherited a very linear view of baptism and, and kind of apostolic authority. And so when some of the very earliest Baptists, they, they actually came to a conclusion that the later Baptists didn't share, and we don't share, that there was no church on earth that was uh, adequate or legitimate. They, they believed that at least in their neighborhood, uh, in England, the Church of England had become corrupt and and. Uh, it was null and void, that the Church of Rome was null and void, and they didn't know, like, where can we get baptized that will be actually valid and legitimate? And at the end of the day, John Smith, one of the early general Baptists, actually baptized himself and said, there, I started up a new line. He needn't worry about that. Baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptism accompanied by faith and repentance is always baptism into the one body of Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so, no, we don't see here a model for us that after coming to faith, we must seek out some second blessing, a second coming of the the Spirit upon us. Instead, we see here the unity of the church and that those who had believed in an incomplete way in this transitional time where the church is spreading largely through the, the network of the synagogues, that there are some who had not fully embraced Jesus or fully understood what he'd done, but were primed and ready for belief. The last couple of verses here we're going to look at have to do with what Paul did then afterwards. He entered into the synagogues, verse 8, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, uh, known to his friends as Tyrannosaurus, I believe, or at least he would be today. 
So Paul went back to the very synagogue that had welcomed him so warmly last time. And there he did get a good reaction. He got a, a, there were people accepting the gospel. He was, he was welcomed. But over time, a certain group became, and I think a better translation would be the word hardened, because this is the same Greek word that is used in the Septuagint uh, to, to translate uh, Pharaoh being hardened in his heart. They became hardened, and they began to speak evil of, to malign or revile the way. The way, of course, is sort of the technical term for how Christians referred to themselves, reminding us once again that it's not a club that we get into. Okay, I said the prayer. Okay, you're in. Rather, it's a road we're walking down together. So these people were defaming and slandering the church, and we find out here that Paul views this just as when he was persecuting the church as persecuting Jesus. And so these people are slandering Jesus because they're slandering the body of Christ. If you've been in such a situation, you may be tempted to keep that going, to say, well, every time the church is mocked and I'm mocked, then, you know, Jesus said, blessed are you when you are mocked. Let's kind of stretch this out and just endure it. That is not something you want to keep going. It's not a situation you want to prolong. The way being maligned, the Savior being defamed. We don't want to enable blasphemy of the name of Jesus. And Paul doesn't want to do that here. And certainly he doesn't want these new believers who've just come to faith in the context of this synagogue to be around that. A whole bunch of maligning of Jesus and the faith and the church. And so he withdraws after three months when he hits a wall of unbelief. Like in Corinth, he withdrew there and went next door to Jason's house. Here he withdraws from the synagogue to go to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, uh, which becomes then a hub of evangelism for two years. Yes, there is a time when you have proclaimed the gospel and you've done it fully and you've answered some objections and you find that you are just being met with derision or scoffing or mockery to knock the dust off your sandals, shake the dust out of your garment and go, whether it's next door or down the road or one cubicle over or whatever and bring the gospel to someone else. You will find someone eventually like this who is ready and waiting to receive this good news. One text family, and you probably will find in your uh, Bible, there is a footnote uh, that references this. Uh, there are manuscripts that, that tell us specifically that Paul taught from the fifth hour to the tenth hour each day, which is from about 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. You know, I always do the, the work to see how reliable and, and how likely these alternate readings are. And this one seems to me quite, quite likely that this was what was going on. Why tell us this? Well, these are the hours when business was ordinarily suspended. It's the hottest part of the day. It's like siesta time. Everyone would take a break, go cool off somewhere, probably go up on the roof of your house in the shade and take a nap or, or just, just kind of rest, and then you're going to return to your work later on. But instead of doing that, Paul's disciples were coming into the lecture hall. And during that hottest time of the day, they were studying and learning and, and, and uh, reading and, and, and hearing teaching about Jesus and preaching about uh, how, it, how we follow him in a world that is hostile to the gospel. If Paul was practicing his trade here in Ephesus at this time, he was doing it in the morning and then preaching the gospel during the heat of the day. Finally, our text ends with this verse. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. He was in a good place. Things were going well. As he writes uh, to Corinth, he says, I, I, I stayed a long time because there was a wide open door for ministry, although there was much 
uh, resistance. There were many adversaries. We just read about them, and we're seeing that there was a wide-open door. So he stays. I mean, Ephesus was an ideal place. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, where the Roman proconsul resided. It was the, the chief Asian city in the promoting of emperor worship. It was a place where the gospel was, was just so badly needed, and there were people who were accepting it. And so, yeah, he spent one year at Corinth during the second missionary journey, and that seemed like a lot, but now he spends two years and three months total in Ephesus. And he had wanted to go there so bad, and one time it didn't work. The second time he was able to get there, but he, he needed to get home for the festival. He needed to get back to Jerusalem. He hadn't taken a vow. He was at the end of his journey. But finally, in God's timing, he gets there. And he is able to take his time and build the church and make disciples. During this time, it seems that Paul suffered a good deal. We can fill in the gaps from uh, his letters and, and kind of put together a timeline. It seems he was probably in prison for a little while. It's clear that he made a quick trip over to Corinth to resolve a growing conflict there that reminds us that Paul has this constant concern for all his churches, and yet he kept on ministering in Ephesus all the while. During the course of two years, they're based in that lecture hall of Tyrannus. And as a result, everyone in Roman Asia, we're told, heard. Undoubtedly, this is uh, not an exaggeration, but a generalization, as everyone will do. And I, maybe I just did it there. Uh, you'll say, yeah, everyone knows about that. And the fact is that perhaps every single person didn't hear the gospel, but all of, all of Asia did. Because while he was teaching, he's making converts in, in Ephesus. Those who hear the gospel bring it out to Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. And meanwhile, a renewed, continually renewed audience keeps pouring into Ephesus for trade, for commerce, for these Roman festivals and shows. And he keeps on plugging away the whole time and seeing the fruit. Even, even sometimes seeing the fruit of seeds he'd planted years earlier. And the Spirit has been working, and, and others like Apollos have been watering, and then suddenly there's growth, new life. Making disciples is slow going, but as a result of this stay, once again, everyone in Roman Asia heard. Can you imagine if we could say everyone in Lansing knew of Jesus? Even if what we meant was there was not a street or a household that hadn't had the opportunity to be exposed to the gospel. What a great thing that would be. We've been here not for two years, but... Gosh, we're coming up on 100, and I, I'm hoping that if God wills it, I'll be here to celebrate that 100 years. And, and here we, too, have a continually renewed uh, presence of different students streaming in here to the middle of the state to attend university. We have government. We have all sorts of things. There are people always here, new people to hear the gospel, people who've been here their whole lives and have never heard the gospel. Where is the evangelistic zeal that caused that that caused Paul to cut across mountains to get to Ephesus because he had a burden for that city we're already here in Lansing do we have a burden for this city to bring the gospel to everyone here well he brought it both to Jews and Greeks the text tells us what a great door and effectual opened unto him like he says in 1 Corinthians 16 Made his headquarters there for so long, despite many adversaries. And friends, I don't think we have many adversaries here, but we do have a great and wide open door for gospel ministry. Let me start with you. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Have you seen the working and the power of the Spirit in your life? Something supernatural. When I lived in Grand Rapids, my pastor, my mentor, Ed Pikey, used to he used to do the similar kind of children's time we do here. The kids would come up, 
And uh, he would just, he, he was getting near retirement. The guy would just do a best of all the time. He had like 12 of them and he would do reruns all the time. One of them he always would do is he would pull out a flashlight and he would say, what is it? There's no kids in here. Okay, I don't have to explain what a flashlight is. Uh, he, he'd say, what does this do? And all the kids would say, oh, it's a flashlight. It shines light. And he'd hit the button. Nothing would come on. He'd say, what happened? Why, why is it not? Why is it not coming on? And they'd say, well, maybe there's no batteries in it. And he'd say, no, there's batteries. And they'd say, well, maybe the batteries are dead. He'd say, no, the batteries are new. And they'd say, well, probably the, the, the light bulb is missing or it's burned out. And he would, he would say, no, I'm looking at it now. I see the filament. The light bulb's fine. Finally, after, you know, stringing them along a little while, before they got too squirrely, he was better than I at this, he would open up the flashlight and slowly dump out the batteries. And in between the batteries, he'd stuffed in wrappers and junk and little bits of rag and all sorts of just garbage. And he'd say, oh, there's, there's something in here blocking the flame. Even though these batteries are powerful and they're there and there's this potential for light, something in there blocking it. In that same way, perhaps you are a believer. You have put your faith in Jesus. You have received the Spirit and you know there was a time when his power was present in you. And yet now you say, why do I not observe this power of the Spirit in my life today? It seems like there's been a cooling. Like I'm one of the irons that's gone out of the fire and cooled and is now, you know, off to the side, out of sight and out of mind. And God is no longer working through me. Perhaps you have quenched the Spirit. Perhaps just like you can stuff a bunch of extra garbage into the midst of a, a flashlight and block that flow, you're, you, you've given into a besetting sin and just accept its presence in your life, or you've fallen into prayerlessness, itself a sin, where you are not in connection with, with your spirit, in, in communion with Him. Perhaps you've been uh, not repenting of your sins and taking of the Lord's Supper here in an unworthy manner. Call out to God that His Spirit would be present in you and you would know it is there. Read Psalm 51. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Remember that turning over a new leaf is not the answer. Turning away from your sins is not even the full answer. But turning away from your sins and turning to Christ. And finally, for those of you who are walking in the Spirit, are there people in your life who are on the very cusp of embracing a Christian faith whom you have not noticed because they're not lost causes, because they seem so close to the truth that they don't need your help? Well, Paul didn't think that way. Priscilla and Achilla didn't think that way. They said, let us take you aside and help you learn the way of God more adequately, more fully. If you're close to accepting Jesus, all the better. Let me be the one to take you by the hand and walk you those last few steps over the finish line into life everlasting. Let us be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit this week, asking Him to show us where the Apollos is in our lives, where, where those who are near to salvation are, so that we would look not just to reach the, the most obvious of sinners, and, and those who are, wow, that person really needs Jesus. No, we all need Jesus. And we all need this spirit. You know, I saw in, uh, on Facebook this week uh, one of those little meme graphics that said, do you need the Holy Spirit to go to heaven? Please, you need the Holy Spirit to go to Walmart. We need the spirit to open our eyes and lead us and guide us into all truth. And, and we need the spirit to guide us as we go out from this place into the mission field that is the world.
that we would see those whom God has foreordained for eternal life. We would remember we've been given that task of shining the light, of showing them not only their sins, but that there is a Savior. That they are no longer under the thumb of a tyrant that is the law, that is their guilt, but that they have been set free by the Son, the one whom John the Baptist foretold, the one of whom he was not even worthy to unbuckle his sandals. And you know what? Neither you nor I are worthy of that either. And yet he calls us brothers and sisters. He invites us to spend eternity with him. And before that, he invites us to spend our lives serving him and bringing his gospel to the ends of the earth.